0: This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services.
1: Good evening. Today in his New York civil fraud trial, knowingly or not, the former president swung a wrecking ball at a pillar of his defense, namely that he left the question of how much pieces of his business empire are worth to the accountants, or in the words of his co-defendant son, Eric, I pour concrete, I don't focus on appraisals. Well, today, from the witness stand, in between attacks on the judge and the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, his own words suggested the opposite, that he was involved. These are appraisals, you'll remember, contained in financial statements that the judge has already ruled were fraudulent. "'I would look at them,' the former president said on the stand. "'I would see them, and I would maybe on occasion have some suggestions.' which is what the state of New York is claiming, that the appraisals were inflated on his behalf and at his behest. And testifying about loan agreements with Deutsche Bank, he went beyond even those already court-determined inflated appraisals, saying, quote, the net worth of me was far greater than the financial statements. The former president also admitted involvement in lowering valuations in the case of his Trump Tower apartment around the same time that Forbes magazine outed him for claiming it was nearly three times larger than it actually is. The question, this change in valuation came at your direction? His answer, probably I said I thought it was too high. He also seemed to have trouble with timelines, at one point testifying that a loan for Chicago property was, quote, long since gone, only to be reminded it was paid off just last week, or suggesting he was still president through 2021, even though he'd left office in January of that year. Beyond all that, though, his demeanor at one point, prompting this from Judge uh, Ngorian to uh, defense attorney Christopher Kies. I beseech you to control him if you can, the judge said. If you can't, I will. I will excuse him and draw every negative inference that I can. Do you understand that? It was that kind of a day. CNN's Kara Skinnell watched it all happen. She joins us now from outside the courthouse in Lower Manhattan. So tell more about what you saw.
2: Right, Anderson, so he was on the stand for nearly four hours of questioning. He did answer some of these questions substantively, including acknowledging that he did look at these financial statements, that he did on occasion make suggestions for values, and correcting, as you said, the value for Trump Tower, calling it a mistake. Now, the judge had, and I should also mention that he, you know, in addition to placing blame on the accountants or saying it was their responsibility, he also acknowledged that these statements went to the bank, and he certified that these statements were accurate, but he tried to downplay that, too, saying that the banks did their own digging into the numbers and that it didn't matter, they didn't really rely on them. This will all be up for the judge to ultimately decide. But many of Trump's answers today were long-winded. He was going off on tangents. And the judge from the start, trying to set the tone here, telling Trump right out of the gate that he wanted answers, not speeches. And then he said to Trump's attorney, if you can't rein him in, I will, and threatened to move him and remove him from the stand. Now, the one point where Trump got the the most heated, and he showed some anger, that he was losing patience, he raised his voice, it was when the attorney general's office had asked him about their main claim in this case, that his financial statements were fraudulent and they were misleading. That is where we saw Trump the most expressive. And he got upset at that point, saying that, as he put it to the judge, he called me a fraud and he didn't know anything about me, and calling the New York attorney general a political hack. Anderson?
1: The former president's lawyers also brought up a motion for for mistrial. What was the judge's reaction?
2: Right. So, Trump's attorney said that they're going to file a motion for a mistrial. And this all relates to the communications that the judge has had with his clerk. They say that it, they believe it shows some kind of sign of bias. So they said they wanted to raise this motion. They wanted the judge to give them some direction and how to do it without tripping the gag order. And the judge was telling them, I don't think you should make this motion. So they pushed back, both Chris Kies and Alina Haba, saying that they believed that they needed to make this motion. How could they do it? So the judge then relented and said that they could make it, they could make make it in writing so as not to violate the gag order, in a sense. And he said he will make a decision on that quickly. Now, that motion won't come until the New York, until the New York attorney general's office rests their case. That is expected to happen on Thursday after Ivanka Trump, their final witness, finishes testimony. Anderson?
1: Karis right, thanks very much. With me here is Cardozo Law Professor and former federal prosecutor Jessica Roth, also Cyrus Vance Jr., former Manhattan District Attorney and CNN's Caitlin Collins, host of The Source, who's outside the courthouse uh, all, all day. Um, Mr. Ange, what was your takeaway from today?
3: Well, from what I listened to uh, as an observer uh, from on the media, was this was as I think we would expect. Uh, you, you expect, in one sense, to go into a courtroom and hear witnesses tell the truth. I think that's how we all got into this system and what we believe is the process. Uh, but I think we're dealing with someone who, for whom that is, is a foreign concept and does not play by those rules. And so I think today... Uh, the former president was focused on his election. It was about his political audience. Uh, It also had legal ramifications, however, and that is his end game is to become president again. And only in that position will he be be capable of controlling the decisions that will affect his future and his liberty. Mm. So I think there is a legal aspect to what he did today, but I thought uh, the way he testified in his answers had little to do really with trying to convince the judge of anything. Uh, First, given the judge's prior rulings of a finding of fraud. And secondly, because I think it was clear the judge had little patience uh, for his explanations.
1: Caitlin, there certainly was a lot of messaging, I mean, campaign messaging going on.
4: I I mean, he walked into that courtroom, I think, with no plans to try to ingratiate himself with this judge, even though it's the judge who is the decision maker here and is going to be the one deciding what he pays in penalties after he already found him liable for fraud. And I was just reading over the court transcript that we've received, and it's that remarkable moment in just the first 40 minutes where the judge is so frustrated with Trump that he's instructing his attorney to go have a conversation with his client. And Chris Kai's the attorney, is saying, OK, well, can we take a 10-minute break? And the judge says, well, are you going to explain the rules to him during that 10-minute break? I mean, he was very testy with uh, back and forth with Trump's attorneys, so frustrated at Trump, you know, Doing what Trump does, answering questions in lengthy ways and not with a yes or no, which is what he did, you know, at the White House. It's what he did under oath today. But it didn't help him, I don't think anyone would agree, and maybe trying to, you know, ingratiate himself with the judge here.
1: Jessica, just in terms of from a legal perspective, did the judge hurt himself in any way or bring up possible reasons for some sort of an appeal?
5: Trump and his attorneys, I think, were trying to provoke the judge into reacting in a way that would create a record that would help Trump in making an appellate argument that the Trump was biased against him. If there was any legal strategy of the Trump side going into today's proceeding, it seemed like that was it to try to generate some reaction from the judge. I don't think the judge took the bait at the beginning of the morning where it looked like the judge was castigating Trump and even saying at one point, you know, I'm going to draw an adverse inference from your testimony because right. you're being so uncooperative and I may not even let you continue to testify. I was getting a little bit concerned that the, that the judge was playing into their strategy a little bit. But the judge reined it back after the break. At this point, I don't see anything that would support this argument that I think there's going to be the basis also for their motion for a mistrial, that the judge is biased.
1: And just I mean, Trump admitting that he, you know, ultimately, altered- uh you know was involved at least in the preparing the financial statements. Was that uh, as, was that, is that very damning for him? I
5: think that was damaging to Trump. I mean, he could have simply said, I really had nothing to do with the documents. It may not have been all that credible, but that was a strategy that his sons really pursued. And Trump at times said, I really wasn't involved. But then there were times where he admitted that he essentially gave instructions that valuation should be lowered. And of course, if you're that involved in the preparation or review of statements, then of course, you could also be giving direction that the value should be increased, which is really the primary allegation here. So I think that he, that was an important concession that he may not have realized he was making. Um, he also acknowledged uh, sort of being aware that some of the loan documents that required his personal guarantee were likely that that was significant, which of course goes to the question of materiality, which the judge has to find here. So I, don't th- I do not think on the substance, which was hard to find in what happened today, but there was a little bit of substance and that was bad for Trump.
1: For somebody who's been sued as much as he has and been involved in as many lawsuits, he seems to be a pretty bad witness. I mean, do you agree with that, Mr. Rice?
3: Yes, I do. Uh, uh, and I don't have an explanation as to why that's the strategy you'd, you'd pursue in a lifetime of business, except to infuriate your opponents and, and your judge that sits and hears in front of you, sits and listens to your case. Uh, Undisciplined, uh, not easy to educate, uh, doesn't listen to, no doubt, I think, to his lawyer's ad- ad- advice. So as someone who's been a defense lawyer for 20 years and a prosecutor for the other 20, I think he is probably one of the difficult, most difficult clients any of these lawyers have, have ever had,
1: and uh, a challenge. I mean, you've seen the judge's summary, the judge's summary judgment. Do you think a criminal uh, prosecution— on this would would be warranted?
3: Well, uh, we we certainly looked at that when I was the district attorney after we had indicted the Trump organization on tax fraud. Uh, I think the current DA and his office will no doubt pay very close attention to the testimony in this trial. And... I believe at the end of this trial, they will review that investigation into uh, into w- w- which we were working on, which is essentially a mirror image of what the uh, uh, attorney general is doing, although from a criminal standpoint, and mm-hmm. look to see whether the evidence in this trial has given them uh, what they believe is the extra evidence that they f- want
1: in order to proceed. And what would that, what would the, what would the a criminal charge be?
3: Well, it, it, uh, the criminal charge would... <laughs> Uh, The the criminal charge would be, among other things, to uh, make false statements in connection with big business records. Uh, Not the most serious crime in the world. If done in furtherance of another crime, uh, it can be elevated to a a felony. Uh, There are uh, simply fraudulent statements under state law, I think, are, are the principal crimes. Under federal law, I think there's a much broader range uh, uh, of of crimes that could have been charged, and it was under investigation by the federal Mm -hmm. authorities.
5: And one thing that's interesting about what the, the causes of action that remain in this case is that if the judge finds for the attorney general on those, the judge is essentially making a finding that Trump and the other defendants violated criminal statutes that are essentially incorporated by reference mm-hmm. into this very interesting New York civil statute. And so you'd have a finding by preponderance of the evidence by a judge that that's there were violations of criminal statutes. And that's a very powerful message, if in fact that is the judge's finding, Whether the D.A. pursues it as a criminal case beyond a reasonable doubt is a different matter. But that would be the judgment if that is how the court returns its verdict.
1: And Kayla, we are in this bizarro world where the former president antagonizing the judge helps him politically. I mean, it plays among the people who follow him well.
4: Right. I don't know if it boosts him. I mean, that support is pretty solid. He doesn't really go down. He he doesn't really go up. You can see that in the polling that he cited multiple times. It's funny to me to hear you say that he's one of the worst clients that these attorneys have ever had because Chris Kyes came out at the end of it and declared into the microphones that Trump was one of the best witnesses that he's ever represented in the 30 years that he's been in office or that he's been uh, as a lawyer That's not what I've heard behind the scenes. I think that there's actually a real issue that this legal team is having to deal with, and it's their client sitting right next to them in court, telling them how they should be lawyering inside the courtroom. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's how typically a Chris Kies would act. I don't think typically he and the other attorneys uh, would say it's brilliant the way Trump was acting on the witness stand or say that, you know, he's the future president of the United States, something that was as immaterial to the actual facts of the case that's at hand here. But I think that's what the presence of Trump being in that courtroom does Sorry. to them.
1: Sarah fans, thanks so much. Uh, Jessica Roth as well and Caitlin will be back at nine o'clock. Um, At the top of the hour, coming up next, what Art of the Deal author Tony Schwartz makes of the testimony and whether he saw something like this coming decades ago when writing the book. Also, the latest on the fighting in Gaza and the father whose eight-year-old daughter, who he thought had been killed by Hamas,
0: may now actually be alive but held hostage. Grief is a human experience and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk-monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. CNS Karis mentioned at the top of the
1: broadcast, the former president singled out the judge today pointing at him and said, he called me a fraud and he doesn't know anything about me. Tony is now someone who learned a lot about then-businessman Trump while ghostwriting The Art of the Deal, author Tony Schwartz. Tony, good to have you. So, as we mentioned, I mean, the former president was combative with the judge today, certainly reprimanded for giving rambling responses on the witness stand. What
6: did you make of his testimony? You know, it's a blend of performance for the base and an absolute lack of impulse control. It's, it's about half rational and half totally nuts. Um, I truly think he has the capacity of a seven-year-old when it comes to mastering his own emotions, but he's also clearly playing a role. It's a role he played, you know, from the start when he ran, when he started running for president. In fact, for the last forty years, uh, and what he did really was to attack the judicial system which is a precursor to what we know we can expect should he be reelected again.
1: The, you know, his admission on, you know, certainly looking at financial statements and the idea that he wouldn't look at financial statements about his own, you know, valuations, I mean, it's impossible to imagine given his ego, given what we know about him.
6: Well, first of all, only Trump could come up with the valuations that he did and maintain a straight face. Um, you know, he knows that in every single case, I'm quite certain he was intimately involved and made the final call. I'm sure that when they called it a 30,000 foot penthouse, his if he had any other argument than that it was 30,000 feet when it was really 10,000 square feet, it was that it's 60,000 square feet if you count the elevator shafts. You know, his attitude is and and always has been just... Say it bigger, and people will buy it if you say it often enough. And God knows he says it often enough.
1: How did he appear to you? I mean, does he
6: look—how does he look to you? You know, he looks—first of all, he looks—and this is ironic, given all the flack Joe Biden takes about his age, but he looked old. He looked old. He looked tired. He looked— um you know, he was rambling is a nice way of saying incoherent, unable to stay on point. Um, he looks to me like someone who's under, uh, you know, tremendous pressure. Uh, look, he's he's facing all of these criminal counts. He's terrified of being found guilty. I don't think he really believes that being found guilty will serve, forget that it will won't serve him well personally, but I don't think he thinks it'll help him politically he's not going to get more supporters because he's found guilty of one of these crimes this is obviously not one where he'd end up in jail um but it's still in my mind it can't possibly help him what i think though is he's setting up he's giving us a picture of what an authoritarian an american authoritarian president a dictator will look like He'll say whatever he wants. He'll do whatever he wants. He'll go after his enemies. He'll do it in ways that defy imagination. And he believes, as was so clear in the court today, that he'll get away with it.
1: Did, um, you know, he said today that his net worth was far greater than the financial statements, that he could have added brand value to those figures. What do you think when you hear him talk about his brand, whether it's, you know, the Art of the Deal or MAGA or some hybrid of the two at this point?
6: No, I think his brand is MAGA now. I mean, I think his brand is, you know, right-wing fanaticism and the willingness to say anything about anybody, the desire to stir up anger and hatred and polarization. I think that's his brand. And remarkably, um, that brand is, is being bought by people who are, stand to lose the most. If you're a young black man and you're supportive of Donald Trump, you are supporting someone who is going to come after you because he's a racist and because he is, uh, because he's a man who, who, who is vi- inclined to violence. So um, I, I, think, I think it's a, look, you get to a point where you've said something so many times that you feel like the man who was crying wolf. But the people out there, and there are, I do believe, nearly half the country, maybe half the country, who are prepared to vote for Trump, are so desperately missing what the experience is going to be like for them. Um, It's going to be horrific. I only hope that, you know, that doesn't occur.
1: Tony Schwartz, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Just ahead, more breaking news. New explosions in Gaza tonight. As is Israel's military says, it has completely encircled Gaza City. Plus, the father of an 8-year-old Israeli girl was told she was dead after the murders on October 7th, the slaughter that happened at his kibbutz. In fact, he told Clarissa Ward, you may remember this interview, that death was a far better fate for his daughter than being held hostage by Hamas. Well, almost a month later, that father has now been told that his daughter may be alive and a hostage. It is already November 7th in Israel and Gaza and a few hours from now will mark one month since Hamas gunmen executed more than 1400 Israeli men, women and children and kidnapped by current Israeli estimates more than 240 people. This is Gaza just a short time ago flares in the night sky along with explosions could be heard by our CNN ground team along the border. Today, uh, Israel's military said it has now encircled Gaza City, which it called the quote "fortress of Hamas terrorist activities." Late word tonight in an interview with ABC News, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel will have quote "overall security responsibility" unquote for Gaza after the war ends. He also said it will last for a quote "indefinite period." Days after the October 7th attack, Cleric ward met with a father, Thomas Hand, who had been told that his 8-year-old daughter Emily had been killed. Both lived in Kibbutz Berri. They'd been separated, Emily had been visiting a friend when Thomas heard the sirens, which he says didn't worry him until he heard it was gunfire. This was his response to Clarissa about hearing that his daughter was dead.
7: They just said, we found Emily. Uh, she's dead. And I went, yes! I went, yes, and smiled. Because that is the best news of the possibilities that I knew.
1: Call that the best news because it was better, he said, than the horrors he believed awaited her as a hostage in Gaza. We have an update to that story tonight. It turns out that his daughter, Emily, may be alive. Ed Lavendera has details.
8: From the morning of the 7th, Until now is a nightmare, roller coaster, tragedy.
9: The anguish Thomas Hand is about to describe has left him trembling for weeks. It's a journey of death and a hope of resurrection, he says, is impossible to imagine.
8: On the day it was uh, Russian roulette, whether you made it or not.
9: On October 7th, Hamas fighters stormed the Kibbutz Be'eri, killing roughly 130 people and ravaging the community of 1,100 residents. That morning, Thomas's 8-year-old daughter, Emily, was sleeping at a friend's house. Thomas could not reach her as Hamas fighters took over the Kibbutz. Days after the attack, the Irish-born father spoke with CNN's Clarissa Ward about the moment he was told his daughter had been killed.
2: Thomas waited
10: two agonizing days before getting the news.
7: They just said, we found Emily. Uh, she's dead. And I went, yes. I went, yes, and smiled. <laughs> Cause that is the best news of the possibilities that I knew. She'd be in a dark room filled with Christ-knows-how-many-people and terrified every minute, hour, day, and possible years to come. So
9: death was a blessing, an absolute blessing. Thomas says leaders of the Be'eri kibbutz community told him Emily's body was seen in the aftermath. But almost a month after the massacre, Thomas was given news that almost made him collapse. He says the Israeli army told him it's highly probable Emily is alive and a Hamas hostage. How were you told the news that Emily might be alive? That was official
8: uh, from the army. Uh, With all the information that they have, the intelligence that they have, uh, it's very likely that she's been taken to uh, Gaza.
9: Thomas says he's been told Emily's body is not with the remains of victims and that there was no blood found inside the home where she slept the night before. Thomas also says that cell phones belonging to the family Emily was staying with have been tracked inside Gaza. When you spoke with Clarissa Ward a few weeks ago, you said death would be a blessing in this situation.
8: That's that's how I felt at the time, yeah.
9: How do you describe where you are now?
8: Extremely worried about her, obviously. What conditions she's been held in? She's, you know, more than likely in a in a tunnel somewhere under under Gaza. Your imagination is is horrible. And it's her birthday on the 17th of this month. She'll be nine. She won't even know what day it is. She won't know what day it is. She won't know it's her birthday. There'll be no birthday cake, no party, no friends. you just be petrified in a tunnel under Gaza, that's her birthday.
9: Thomas is now flooded with the hope and the despair of what his daughter might be enduring. He prays she can somehow hear these words to her. If Emily is watching, um, just
8: to let her know that we love her. All of us, we're all waiting for her to, to come back safely.
9: The survivors of the Be'eri kibbutz are temporarily living in a hotel. In the lobby, there's a vigil to all the kidnapped hostages. Now Emily's family says the young girl's photo will be placed next to the others. You described as being a hostage as worse than death. I believe so. It's, it's The unknown is, is awful.
8: The waiting is awful, but... Uh, That's what we've got to do now. Just pray and hope that she comes back in some broken state.
9: But we can fix her. We'll fix her somehow. Do you allow yourself now to think about holding Emily again?
8: In my head, I can see, you know,
7: like a beach, scene. her running to me and me running to her. Just picking her up. Never letting her go.
1: And Ed joins us now from Tel Aviv. I mean, what this family has been through, my God.
9: Yeah, It's unimaginable. Um, he told us that many times the families there at that hotel where they're all staying will simply just come up to him and say, uh, we have no words. And that's the, the shared grief and the understood grief that they're all uh, enduring. Um, Thomas had been making plans to cremate her daughter's body. She, he wanted to bury her with her mother who passed away of cancer. Um, several years ago. Um, that is what they have been enduring. But despite all of this, Anderson, um, he doesn't uh, harbor any anger toward anyone. He says he understands the leadership of his kibbutz. It was an overwhelming moment. Um, mistakes were, were might have been made. Um, and he doesn't hold any ill will toward, toward anyone. And right now, all of a sudden, um, he is now trying to figure out what to do next. In fact, when he was told the news from Israeli military Um, He actually didn't know what to do with it. He almost, uh, he has two older children and he contemplated not telling them um, because, you know, it's just the the roller coaster of emotions. And in the end, he said, you know, people needed to know uh, that this is uh, Emily's fate right now. And uh, so they wait.
1: Let's hope they all come home soon, Ed Lavendera. Thank you. Just ahead, the humanitarian uh, situation inside Gaza. Images captured by an American nurse working for the group MSF, Doctors Without Borders, who was inside Gaza until last week. She joins us next to tell us what it was like getting out.
0: All there is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle-up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support.
1: This is a video of the aftermath of a strike in the al shati refugee camp in Gaza. According to journalists working for CNN, the attack came during intense Israeli bombardment, a bombing Sunday night. The IDF has not commented on the incident. United Nations officials today said 70 percent of people in the Gaza Strip are displaced, many in living, in living in conditions, a statement called, quote, inhumane. The Secretary General said the Gaza is becoming a, quote, graveyard for children. Israel's ambassador to the U.N. uh, lashed out at those at the comments, called for the Secretary General's resignation. Emily Callie Callahan is a nurse, activity manager for Doctors Without Borders, uh, MSF. She was evacuated last Wednesday and arrived back in the U.S. just over the weekend. First of all, how does it feel to be out?
10: A lot of people keep asking me that, um, and I really don't have a good answer. Um, I obviously have a sense of relief that I'm home and I'm with my family and feel safe for the first time in 26 days. And I'm having a really hard time finding any joy in any of it um, because me being safe is the result of having to leave people behind.
1: People watching this have seen images from Gaza. They've seen the hospital images. They've seen the horror of children dead day after day after day after day. I mean, they've seen all the images. But to actually be there and to experience it, you're experiencing all these things which a camera can never capture. So could you just talk a little bit about what, Stan, when you close your eyes at night, what is it you think about now?
10: I think... The answer to that question, I think I, I'll start at KYTC, which was, we were we were relocated about five times over the course of 26 days due to security concerns. And one of the places we wound up was the Khan Yunis Training Center. We call it KYTC. That's when
1: people had evacuated to the south. So you were in the south of yes, Gaza at that Yes, when point.
10: we went to Wadi, below Wadi Gaza line. And there were, by the time we left there, there were 35,000 internally displaced people living alongside us. There were children with just massive burns down their faces, down their necks, all over their limbs. And because the hospitals are so overwhelmed, they are being discharged immediately after. And they're being discharged to these camps with no access to running water. There's 50,000 people at that camp now and four toilets. They're given two hours of water every 12 hours. There's and four
1: toilets for 50,000 people.
10: Yes. Um, and that's where we were living, too. And they have these fresh, open burns and wounds and partial amputations that are just walking around these conditions. And parents are bringing their children to us, going, please, can you help? Please, can you help? And we have no supplies.
1: When in situations where there are tens of thousands of people and it is a war and people don't can't feed their kids, things get strange very fast, and things get tough very, very fast, and people turn on each other. You saw that up close.
10: Um, at KYTC, we were, the reason we had to leave was because we were starting to be harassed. Um, people, desperate people who are losing loved ones right and left are angry. And they would point at me and scream, American, walking past. And at that point, we had no idea what was coming in the next few days. and. Uh, They would yell things in Hebrew to see if we were Israeli. Um, They accused our national staff of either being traitors or said, "You're, you're pretending to be Arab. We know that you're just pretending to be Arab. Stop lying to us. And our staff had to defend themselves. And we said to them over and over again, you don't have to stay. We understand if you want to leave us. And they said, you are family too, and we're not going anywhere.
1: Your staff, the, the Palestinians who work for MSF for Doctors Without Borders, were concerned about your safety.
10: We would have died within a week without them. Um, they they are the only reason we are
1: alive. It's incredible that this took so long to get Americans, sick people, start to move through that Rafa border crossing. It's it's inexplicable. And
10: thing. we were desperate. We, we did a calorie count at one point based on our supplies and figured out that if all of us, there's 50 people with us living in a parking lot now, only ate 700 calories a day. If that's all we had, we had two days of food left and that's it. And our national staff took off. We had no cell service at that point. So we had no idea what had happened to them. There's bombs going off all around us because there's no safe place in Gaza.
1: Even getting through that Rafa border crossing, what was that like?
10: They didn't leave our side for a second. You're Um, the
1: national staff. The national staff. Because they feared for your safety, even at the border crossing.
10: They made sure they were standing between us and desperate people. They made sure that they were talking to every official that they could find, trying to push us through, trying to get us on the bus, trying to get us out. And we're sitting there and we're watching these incredible men who have sacrificed everything for us, who have sacrificed time with their families, their own physical safety, their own water supply they were giving to us and we're watching them fight to get us across the border, knowing that we were not bringing them with us. And they didn't, they didn't waver. Ibrahim um, was right in the front with our passports, fighting so hard to get us on. And we get to Arish that night and find out his parents are dead. They were losing family members and friends.
1: You said if, if it wasn't for your national staff, you think you would have been killed
10: mm-hmm.
1: by people who were just desperate
10: we either would have starved to death or run out of water. They were the ones that negotiated all of that. They, Gaza is a small city, so everyone knows everyone, and they would call in favors and call their friends and say, who do you know that has food? Who do you know that's open? Where can we get this? And they would drive all over the place to find water. And when we ran out of bottled water in Gaza, they were the ones that were able to figure out that the water truck was coming here at these times, and oh, I know this guy has a grocery store and uh, they still have power sometimes. I think I can probably get something from them. Like we, when I say we would have starved to death without them, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Um, and in the moments of absolute desperation of civilians, they were steadfast and calm and just talked to them and said, these people are also in the same boat that you are. They have no supplies. They also have no food and water. They are also sleeping outside on the concrete and did it in such a, beautiful way that they were able to talk them down with love and kindness. There was no violence in their heart and it calmed everyone around them down as well.
1: Would you go back to Gaza?
10: In a heartbeat. In an absolute heartbeat. Uh, My heart is in Gaza. It will stay in Gaza. The Palestinian people that I worked with, both our national staff in the office as well as my staff at Indonesia Hospital were some of the most incredible people I've ever met in my life. Um, When everything went off um, and we got the notice to move south of wadi gaza i was texting my my nurses at indonesia hospital and i said we we lost a nurse weekend one um he was killed when the ambulance outside the hospital was blown up and i was texting them when we got the evacuation orders and i said did any of you move south did any of you get out like are any of you coming down this way and the only answer i got was this is our community this is our family these are our friends if they're gonna kill us, we're gonna die saving as many people as we can. And I said, if I can ever have an ounce of the heart that you have, I will, I will die a happy person. They were incredible. I would like to send out a reminder that there are civilians seeking shelter there and that my doctors and nurses didn't leave out of loyalty to their community. And I know that there is an idea being pushed right now that anyone that stayed behind is going to be considered some kind of a threat And I want to remind people that the people that stayed behind are heroes. The people that stayed behind are, are, they know they're going to die. And they're choosing to stay behind anyway.
1: You're talking about doctors, nurses, in the hospital?
10: I wake up every morning and I send out a text message and I ask, are you alive? And every night before I go to sleep, I send another message and says, are you
1: alive? Well, Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up next, a new all over the map report from John King, new polling could spell trouble for President Biden, how the election in Virginia tomorrow could be a key bellwether for election day 2024. New poll numbers suggest trouble, trouble for President Biden. According to The New York Times, seen a college poll released over the weekend, the former President Trump is leading in five battleground states, Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. John King will break down some of the polling in a moment. The presidential election, a year away, but what happens on Election Day tomorrow could say much about how voters will see key issues next year, including abortion. Virginia is the only southern state with no new abortion restrictions since Roe v. Wade was overturned. But now, in pursuit of abortion legislation, which uh, with full Republican control of the Senate legislature would enable, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin is on the campaign trail. So in this week's All Over the Map, John King talks with the governor and Virginia voters
11: a change of seasons in Loudoun County and a choice that will echo well beyond Virginia
2: Abortion's tough I have two girls um, I feel personally that every woman has the right to do what she feels right for her with her body
11: Nanette Mees is a registered Republican but one of the suburban voters who changed Virginia from red to blue
2: Abortion and guns, those are two big things.
11: Mies voted early for the Democrat in a critical state Senate race here.
2: Five flyers in the mail every day for the last month. It's a lot of a lot of money wasted.
11: <laughs> Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin is among those spending millions.
9: Hold in the house, flip in the Senate. Hold in the house, flip in the Senate.
11: Youngkin is not on this year's ballot, but his presidential ambitions are. Youngkin thinks he can reverse the Republican collapse in the suburbs, even while backing new abortion restrictions. If voters give him a full Republican legislature, Youngkin says Virginia will ban abortions after 15 weeks, with exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother.
9: No more are we going to allow bureaucrats to tell folks that parents don't belong in the classroom. Yeah.
11: Yet no abortion mention in his rally speech. You said you're for tax cuts, you're for parental rights, you're for more funding for police. Isn't it strong leadership to say, I'm for this too? It
6: is very clear where I stand on this. We're running a big advertising campaign. Here's the truth. There is no ban.
2: Virginia Republicans support a reasonable 15-week limit.
4: Mega Republicans, like Juan Pablo Segura, want to ban abortions in Virginia. Criminalizing abortions?
11: It is a giant test of whether Republicans can end a streak of punishing election losses since the Supreme Court tossed out Roe v. Wade.
6: Discussion around abortion is one between an extreme position from the left and a reasonable position from all Republicans.
11: The Yunkin events look like a presidential test run. This is in Henrico County, the fast-growing Richmond suburbs. Democrats hope to unseat a big Yunkin ally and prove the abortion debate still cuts their way.
6: There's nothing reasonable
2: about banning abortion, but that's exactly what Republican Siobhan Donovan wants to do. During the COVID lockdowns, it was Siobhan Donovan that really worked to to get our kids back in the classrooms, and I'm deeply appreciative for that.
11: Rachel Kulak calls herself a conservative independent, supports Donald Trump, prefers a six-week abortion ban, but is open to compromise.
2: I don't support abortion, but if he can get it to 15 weeks, I think perhaps that's a fair
5: middle ground.
11: Loudoun County is 40 miles west of Washington, D.C. It still leaned red when G. Van Fleet moved here 18 years ago. Loudoun was home to just shy of 100,000 people then. It is more than four times that now, and 20% of the county's voters are Asian.
5: My neighbors are Indians, Vietnamese, Korea, and I'm Chinese. If you talk about diversity, this is a very diverse area.
11: It's also become more democratic out here. Does that bother you?
5: It bothers me, yes.
11: South Carolina born Gladys Burke is part of Loudon's evolution. She is an independent who leans blue, owns a promotional products business, and takes issue with Youngkin's education agenda. This thing about um, not teaching black history in the schools, not recognizing our black history, because I lived it. But still undecided on the state senate race that could tip the balance of power. I've never been this torn before. But you're open to some restriction? Absolutely. On abortion. absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even if she votes Republican this time, Burke says Yunkin is wrong to think Virginia will return to red next year. Absolutely Biden,
5: Biden, Biden, Biden. You like him? (laughs) Absolutely. I think he's done a great job.
11: Nanette Meese is the face of Virginia's suburban shift. Her last Republican vote for president? George W. Bush back in 2004. That is the last time the Republican nominee carried Loudoun County and Virginia. Still a registered Republican, but ready to cast a fifth consecutive Democratic vote for president next year but with hesitation.
5: I don't think
2: he's the perfect one, but if I have to pick between him and Trump, who I would never, ever, ever so far, it'd be Biden and just pray.
11: That's for next November. First, this year's big test.
1: John King joins us now. What else did the the new poll reveal about a potential Biden-Trump rematch?
11: So let's walk through it, Anderson. Let's just start with tomorrow because that new poll showed Biden is weak and it showed he's bleeding his coalition. So tomorrow in Virginia, in Ohio and elsewhere, we're going to look at the results and see if there are more clues about 2024. In Virginia, we'll look here in the northern Virginia suburbs, down here in the Richmond suburbs. Can Governor Yunkin bring swing voters back to Republicans? That poll suggests, now let me pop out, this is the 2020 map, right? What does that poll show? That poll showed, watch, these were blue in 2020, Michigan and Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia arizona and nevada that poll showed right now all six states won by joe biden in 2020 he is either trailing or in a dead heat with donald trump why anderson that's why it's so interesting let me go deep into the poll the horse race numbers are one thing but it's underneath the poll that you shows the president the incumbent president is in deep trouble donald trump beats him in those states by 20 plus points on the economy donald trump beats him by more than 10 points on immigration the president says donald trump is a threat to democracy They run almost even on that issue, the president with just a narrow edge. So on the issues, Trump, and then look, the president simply, Anderson right now, is bleeding from the Democratic coalition. He won young voters by a lopsided margin. They're tied, voters 18 to 29. He won more than 9 in 10 black votes in 2020, only 71% in those states in this poll. The Latino vote, Trump did make some progress in 2020, but he's making even more now. So if you look at this, if the president can't fix this, he has a year, but if he cannot fix the bleeding of his coalition, this is the 2020 map. What happens if he doesn't fix it, Anderson, is that, Mm. and the Republicans win.
1: Mm. Don King, thanks very much. We'll see what happens tomorrow. We'll be right back. As I mentioned earlier, tomorrow marks one month since Hamas attacked Israel. The attack and events that followed have created a lot of need. If you want to help, you can go to CNN.com backslash impact or text relief to 707070 for more information. The news continues. The Source of Caitlin Collins starts now.
0: Grief is a human experience and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk-monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support.